These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to Through the Window with your friends Greg and Toby. Hello there. It feels like, well, I mean, it has been a while. Unfortunately, we've each had our own issues along the way. It feels like I always begin saying it feels like it's been a while, but it has. Mm -hmm. We're doing our best to once more have time available to record, which is part of the issue, and also to be in a good place to record. Like, Mm. I've been having ongoing issues with my voice ever since having COVID, but I'm okay right now, and ideally we'll get this out as soon as possible. But I'm going to also add that we're recording this very close to the point where Toby and I are going to get to interview the voice actor cast for Panther Soul in the coming months. Yay. And since I want that to be released first... It does mean that, depending on how quickly I can edit this, or whatever comes next, we may have to pick up Steamheart as as far as recording or editing after we're done with Panther Soul. Because the timing is a little bit more of a thing, and, you know, we can get Steamheart done at any time, provided we actually get to it. I mentioned last time that we were probably going to get into less granular detail with the following chapters, uh, which are going to be chapters 35 through 38. We've got a lot of hard-hitting stuff coming down the pike, and so therefore the outline that I put together for this recording is shorter overall, at least in terms of the number of points that I laid out for discussion. But it took us two Skype sessions to cover all those points due to my throat, with an unedited runtime of close to three hours of discussion. So, look forward to that, I guess. Whenever Toby and I record on these things, it's always on looking closer into people's thoughts, people's actions, over the course of whatever chapters we're going to cover. And a lot of what happens here, there's some emotional stuff that we don't want to dive too deep into because... As previously mentioned many times before, this is the darkest part of the story. And a lot of it is just like things happen and there isn't necessarily a lot that we can say about it, at least from the perspective of talking about the story. It Mm -hmm. might be a little bit different if this was School of Movies and we were talking about things that we saw, the set design, the cinematography and everything like that. But here we're dealing only with text and with voices. For it to be mind further than what it is this is the lowest moment the darkest hour there's a lot of our characters being put through the worst of it and to unpack that we would essentially need to articulate why it is even more painful than we might conceive of in Mm -hmm. first impression there is value to that because it means that we get to consider and 
examine the construction of the story overall, the way that the characterization has all built to this or that this is the culmination of certain things in the story. And that is what we will be focusing on with a lot of this. However, to continue with that, to stay with it, means essentially drawing out mm. the despair yeah. when these stories have, at their core, always been about how we find the hope in the despair, mm. which even in this cluster of chapters, which is probably the most despair or one of the contenders for it in this book, in most books in New Century, there is still moments of upward momentum, of mm-hmm. action, of elevating energy. Mm-hmm. But if we were to draw this out, it would feel a little antithetical to also the ethos of New Century, to our own sensibilities. So this is why we are going about these chapters in the way we are. I realize there's a supreme irony in saying, let's get through this quickly, and then talking about a single chapter for the better part of two hours. I guess that's how we roll here in Through the Wind Door. There's always moments in stories where bad things happen, mm. and in other examples, in some stories, there is a point at which the characters and the audience are given a chance to heal from a despairing thing happening. A great example would be the events that happen in the Elven Wood just after Gandalf passing in the Fellowship of the Ring. Oh yeah, side note, I'm going to shock everyone by referring to the Lord of the Rings movies more times in this episode than I ever have before, and possibly more times than I've ever referred to any single piece of media in a given episode. I'm not going to point it out every time, as that would be disruptive. And we never got a jar for Lord of the Rings. So when it comes up, just go ahead and imagine Samwise saying, and look, more Lembus bread. There is one more death in that story, but it's at the end, as a part of the denouement, and even though it's difficult for everybody involved, it has a different tenor to it where it ends on a moment of hope. Mm. This, what we're experiencing right here in the final chapters of Steamheart is more akin to what Toby and I experienced when we read and listened to Let Them Go. And that is a horror narrative in which things keep getting worse and worse. Mm. That's what this part of the story feels like. We've already mentioned how it has horror spice involved in it, which means we see it get worse and worse. Mm. And so therefore it takes four chapters until we begin to see a light at the end of the tunnel. And even then, as we get into, it ends on a question mark. So... (laughs) If you're interested to hear our further thoughts on Horror Spice and New Century, then you will have a Beyond the Wind Door coming soon, question mark, which will be exploring Greg's journey through a lot of seminal horror, both classic and more contemporary. I'm very much looking forward to that. I, I didn't, when I was set this task of watching 10 horror movies... I didn't know how I feel at the end of it, but I figured 
if anyone could pick out horror movies that I'd enjoy, it would be Alex. It would be members of our Discord. Thank you, but, Alejandra. <laughs> as it turns out, this was a worthwhile experience, and I can't wait to share all of mm. my percolating thoughts about this because I did not necessarily end up where I thought I would when I began mm. that journey. And inevitably, I think some parallels and comparisons will emerge to aspects of New Century, specifically the ones that we've covered already. And maybe a little of Nightfall of the Wendigo, but we'll do our best to avoid spoilers for that. The focus will be on the films that you have explored in this particular task of yours. I don't think it's going to be possible for me to not allude to the fact that certain parts of the stories that we have not covered yet reminding me of things that Alex has done, meaning his fictional work in New Century, because everything that he does is a tapestry, a pastiche of so many different sources. He can go ahead and put up a list of like, okay, this book was based on these 14 films, which he has done multiple times. And those may, be, those may be the biggest sources, but there'll be little hints and pieces over there. It's like, that reminds me of that story. That reminds uh, me of that story. In fact, I learned just today that a major New Century character in an upcoming book we're going to cover was partly based around a character from The Big Lebowski. And the only reason I didn't cop to it is that the quote used in the novel was not one I was familiar with, having only seen the movie twice. I had a wonderful exchange with Alex that demonstrates this, where with a recent Panther's Soul chapter that came out, I was just, just sharing private reactions to it with him, and without going to spoilers, I will just say the Maug bit. Mm -hmm. And Greg will know from the recent chapters what scene that is, we were just shooting off different influences and things that it made me think of and feel of and what he went into the writing of it, the audio editing of it. And it's great, the sort of range of influences, including some which uh, you wouldn't necessarily uh, associate with Alex as mm -hmm. some of his repertoire of uh, natural and regular influences. So what you are seeing with New Century is what results from someone who wants to tell a story that is fundamentally them, not just mm -hmm. theirs, but is them in its disposition, its ethos, in its taste, its sense of humour, all of that. But it's also the product of a lifetime of studying different stories and seeing how that just naturally bleeds through and emerges in what they write and you know what it is it feels like it is us doing a tv tropes page of alex's stories because I, what i like about tv tropes is that it doesn't condemn stories for falling into particular patterns it celebrates that hey this feels like this thing that we recognize and enjoy in other works and isn't mm -hmm. that fun isn't the great infinite spiderweb network of media just a blast to experience participate in and witness for those of you that might not realize this the new century multiverse does have its own tv tropes page we have a dedicated 
fan of School of Movies and of New Century, friend of this podcast, Chris Finnick. And honestly, I'm glad he did it, because I have a hard enough time keeping up with my little corner of the New Century fandom. And the TV Tros website is already a black hole that a brain like mine could easily get lost in reading, let alone trying to contribute to it. So, thank you, Chris. He's very thorough about this. He's a good man. I'm thorough. Very glad to have it out there, because if it's in TV tropes, then maybe somebody's going to find it, and that means that we'll get more audience members for New Century. I mean, I still have a lot of Tumblr posts that have, like, I deliberately put as many tags in to just Mm. stuff I thought was cool that was related to whatever new century book i was talking about and mm-hmm. that covers the pretty much phase one of new century and that blog is still up so you know despite all the jokes that no one uses it anymore like it's still taken away people want to search up particular thing you know what like i should really put on a thing for stone spring maidens because the number of tumblr tags that people revel in and love and thrive in stone spring maidens if we sort of put it into tumblr of 2015 2014 Mm. that would be prime fodder it would be just particularly if you put it in the lgbtq tag or something right exactly precisely greg yes we're doing an awful lot to not talk about the first talking point aren't we i was just about to bring that up so our minds as always are in sync let's begin takes a long swig yeah we begin with the cabin And this action sequence that ends with Annie's death. And I spent a lot of time thinking about... (sighs) Deep sigh. I spent a lot of time thinking about how her death is both similar to and yet different from many other famous deaths in beloved media. Trying to understand why it hits as hard as it does, because it does feel... When it happened in the story, back when I first listened to it, it was somehow even more of a gut punch than Hrau. What happens with Hrau, as you've already talked about, has strong symbology with other movies that you could name. And the chapter sort of signposts that something like this is possible because we've been waiting, we'd been waiting for the eventual conflict with Seth and Brayoth. Mm. This comes out of nowhere. To us. Mm-hmm. It comes after what appears to be Annie succeeding by managing to use both her skill and her voice into talking the enemy down. But then, of course, we find that the enemy does stupid shit anyway. Mm. And I would like to address some of the details of why this feels different, specifically the individual segments of it. Toby has already written some stuff about this, Mm. so I will list off the individual components, let him say his prepared material, and then contribute to it myself. I'd originally like written a much longer explanation to this, but I decided since I was getting hung up on this back when I was writing the original outline, I was like, I'm not going to script anything for this myself because the scripting is getting in my way. I will send this to Toby, I will let him script his stuff, and then I will add in any thoughts that I feel like he didn't cover. So, Why don't you go through the whole list, and then we'll take it point by point, just so we can get this 
broader perspective of the multiple elements that okay. factor into her death. The aspects that we are going to address are how she dies, where she dies, when she dies, meaning at one point of the story, why she dies, and finally, the emotional tenor of her final moments, both in how she is feeling and how that affects how her audience feels, both in the story and outside the story. I thought that was a very astute way to break down what is a a difficult sticking point of analysis for us because we can't help but feel emotional about this. The people who were involved in the story's creation feel emotional about this. This was a sticking point. Alex had that feeling writing it where he knew, I think in the behind the scenes uh, episodes he had at the time, when it came down to just him writing the book, he realized that no one would stop him if he just wrote this scene differently. He could choose to let this character live Mm. but he committed to it and mm. that was very hard for him to do we know through i think even our own interviews how it affected loretta to process this to to voice it the, to yeah. voice it all of it to this day loretta's twitter profile simply says i miss being annie oakley it's hard for us to disentangle because we can't help but get sucked into the moment and that speaks power to its effect as a death scene as the death of the character but it is hard for us to approach the analysis of because we can't help but feel sort of drop the analytical side of ourselves and get caught up in it so i wanted to commend you first and foremost finding a way to actually break it down into elements that don't lose that emotional connection, but allow us to pass out the different building blocks that come into it as a story beat and the culmination of her character arc. All right. So first bullet point. Oh, oh God, I didn't intend that. Much. No, no. You want to play me hard? Phrasing. No, I don't. Well, then you better not up. Phrasing. Because I've swallowed just about as much as I can take from you. Hey, phrasing. You made me sad. Yeah, yeah, I made myself sad, too. Uh, I, I, as you started groaning, I was like, oh, God, what the fuck did I just do? <laughs> right. How she dies. It's a stray bullet. One that... The man leading the group, pursuing her and the rest, didn't even want to be fired, lest it hit Rose. He chastises one of the men who was in his group and said, like, you know, don't fire, we might hit Rose. Would you mind not shooting at the thermonuclear weapons? After everything that Annie has confronted and survived, this feels so unfairly swift and unceremonious. But as we have been told since the cartographer's handbook, just because there are fantastical entities out there like the Wendigo, all the very real dangers of the world are still just as likely to take their toll. That includes blood loss with no real means of adequate medical treatment to hand. Ultimately, Annie isn't invincible. No one is. And the dumb luck of it 
mm-hmm. like the unexpectedness of the wound. Obviously, I'm speaking in terms of tropes and traditional narrative language here, but there is an ebb and flow in stories as to who gets wounded, who gets killed, and how. Main characters are usually the ones wounded as a way to ramp up the stakes, and those wounds are often survivable. Those wounds can be foreshadowed, or they can come on as a surprise. Surprise deaths are different. Those are usually saved for enemy combatants as a way to show someone's heroism or badassery, or alternately for heroic extras, again as a way of introducing fresh danger or ramped-up stakes. Once you establish those tendencies, that's also where you can do things like subvert expectations, or play with the meta. A recent book I revisited by John Scalzi, called Red Shirts, centered around a cast of characters on board a starship that realized they were the extras that usually get killed off in a poorly written sci-fi show, and had to figure out how to escape their fates. Having said that, you also want to be careful how you subvert expectations. Some pieces of media like Game of Thrones love to tout that no one has plot armor and could die at any time. Your mileage may vary, whether you like that kind of storytelling or not. Most of the time, you want to avoid giving characters pointless deaths, or fridging them just to give motivation to another character because the audience often doesn't like that. At the same time, you don't want to set up circumstances where, based on the givens of the setting, an injury that would be more dangerous at that time and place is something that is so easily pushed to one side once the immediate danger is over. Most audience members are used to not realizing that hitting someone over the head could result in either instant death or delayed death thanks to concussion or internal injuries. Bullets, on the other hand, are often considered far more deadly. As we see events continue to play out, it is difficult to imagine that it will end any other way. Once the injury has happened, it's the sort of Damocles. And at the same time, we also know this is an era where your average bullet wound is far less survivable. Mm. Like, it's bad enough when put a penny in the jar, we see the shooting happen in the season one finale and the season two uh, opener for the West Wing. We see the attack happen. We don't know if anyone's hit. We see events play out in the season two opener, finding out who has been hurt. And we find that one member of the group has been shot in such a way where survival is potentially unlikely. And while the storytelling aspects of the show might suggest that, oh, they're not going to kill him off at the beginning of a, of a season, you know, because that's, we, we, we look at the aspects of how television works, but the framing of the story makes us fear for his life, even if we already know how it's going to end. Hmm. I rewatched that episode earlier today, and I felt the emotion welling up in me the same as when I first saw it long ago. I could not stop the emotions from happening. Mm. And it would be exactly the same way for any other story 
any movie that I'd ever watched, any book that I'd ever read, and anything that ever happened in New Century. Mm. Toby and I have been following along as the audio drama chapters in Panther Soul has been released. And even though I already knew what was coming, I also knew how difficult it would be to get through to listen to it brought fully to reality, voice acted with mm. Alex's narration or every, anyone's narration because it's a multi-narrator book. But the, the musical stings, the sounds, the sounds in some parts of Panther Soul were a stab in the heart in places. Mm. It's that Alex is that effective at creating this. And <laughs> it's difficult for me to go back and listen to this chapter because the despair in Loretta's voice, the despair in everyone's voice, really, as that part of the story plays out, it's hard. I mean, we keep saying it, but it, it, it is. Mm. Alex continues to go from strength to strength as an audio editor, which brings his stories to greater depths of vibrancy and vitality, which is equal parts to great benefits and great detriment to us as the bits that hurt will hurt even more. <laughs> so I kid, it's all to great benefits. So like, I remember Steamheart being a real step above everything that had come before with just the sequence with the Southern Cross as mm. the greatest audio bit of combat and complicated bit of audio editing that Alex had put together. And that, and been, that has been superseded on so many levels by what he's put times. out with Panther, with, by what he's put out with every subsequent story, but especially with Panther Soul. There is... Completely. We'll be talking about all that soon enough. Mm -hmm. To get back to the original topic, when I think about occasions in media where someone dies out of nowhere by dumb luck, the one that comes most to mind is Wash in the Serenity movie, mm -hmm. where we've just had a climactic, what appears to be life-saving successful moment, and then bam. And that's bad enough. It happens so quickly that you're not sure what happened. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's obvious, but you think to yourself, oh, God, is he? Oh, God, he's not. Here in this chapter, the moment is drawn out, just mm -hmm. like the despair of this part of the story is drawn out. And yeah, I don't have anything yeah. to they, say about that. You are right that. It's the fact that it's drawn out that makes it painful to experience because, as you say, taking a bullet in reality should be something that we feel is cause for immediate concern that this person may die right now, let alone soon. Holy shit. But in storytelling, we feel somewhat conditioned to the idea of until they're a body on the floor, you know, there's still hope. It's the mm. dark version of the, the... They've just got a bullet in them. They're still good. They're still good. There's just a little bit of blood loss. They're still good. They're still good. They're I dead. Mean, I it, know. <laughs> it also depends on the story because mm. there are people out there that will not 
allow themselves to look like they are vulnerable at all in movies in particular. The one that comes to mind is Dwayne Under Siege. Well, that, that Dwayne The Rock Johnson is a recent occasion in which we feel like the actor's requirements have gotten in the way of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. But the one that comes to mind most thoroughly for me is Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, uh-huh. where it's literally a part of the story where we see his character, Casey Ryback, has been shot as a part of an action sequence. And one someone in the story reacts, oh my God, you've been shot. And he's like, no, 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 no bullet here. You think this is being shot? This ain't being shot. And <laughs> like, we like to see how people can shrug that off in certain kinds of action movies. I ain't but it, got time to bleed. Yeah, exactly. But in other kinds of action movies, we almost prefer the vulnerability. Mm. Die Hard is a great example where mm. it feels very much all through that story, like John McClane is very vulnerable, even as he's doing amazing action movie shit. We can mm. see the ongoing consequences to him. There's glass in his feet, man. Yeah, exactly. Or his shoulder popping out of its socket, or just whatever he's been through. Like he is a physical wreck by the end of it. Ah! We watch John walk towards Hans and Holly here, lit from behind so his battered body is half in shadow, feeling every painful step like it's our own. It it just really depends on what you are attempting to do with your story, how it feels when injuries are shrugged off or not. Yeah, and what makes you feel as if the floor is sinking beneath you as you read this, as you listen to it, is you see annotate the bullet, you go, oh shit, but it's how the rest of the encounter unfolds that layers each nail in the coffin, which is the idea of, oh, they need to get somewhere quick where they can get medical attention. Oh, it's a cabin. That doesn't really give us a lot. Oh, they need to hold off the people. Oh, Annie is saying, don't focus on healing me. I need to focus on shooting. Yeah, oh, okay. All of that. Now uh, we can get on to the other stuff, but it's that feeling of how she dies is that it just comes down to... You mentioned earlier the idea of death in fiction that feels like it's inevitable, Mm. and here it straddles the line. You don't know if it was something where this was always going to have happened or if this was something that resulted out of choices, choices Mm. on not just the enemy's side, but on our hero's side. Yeah. You were starting to get into some of our other subtopics here. <laughs> Sorry. So, so let's move into... I'm talking out of practice. Mo- I need to be more focused. Fair enough. Let's move into, as you were starting to get into, where she dies. Mm. As you frame it, it, she is in an isolated place, far from Frank and witnessed by others, witnessed by James and Abigail. Specifically, she's in a cabin that is away from wider society, and there are wolves at the door. Yeah, she the, has... wo- the wolves are specifically quoted at one point. Mm. Are the wolves 
At the door. No. You shot every one of them. And, and we're safe. Yeah. And she has fended them off, done what she has always done, and pushed back against those who would harm her and what she cares about. It harkens all the way back to that backstory that we see why it was so important to bring that up here now in this book, whereas James and Abigail's backstory was something that we eventually elected to be in secret rooms. It feeds into this, but it's not vital that it is contained within the same narrative as Steamheart, whereas with Annie's, it bookends her journey in this book, that she at one point was powerless to fight and to get rid of the wolves that were in her life. And here she is in this place that would look like so many places from her childhood, and she is able to keep those wolves away, that she has, throughout the course of her life, gained the ability to fend off those people who took advantage of her. She's okay. been able to keep them away. That get The thing is, is that all of those subtopics dovetail into each other, so it's hard to talk about <laughs> one without talking about the others. Sure. You're, you're getting a little bit more into the why of it. Yeah. But I, I want to get specifically into the where, mm. because there's a difference between someone dying in their own bed, in theory, in a place of comfort. Yeah. Like when... It's someone else's bed. When some, Well, not even somebody else's bed, but like an example of a potential death that doesn't hit as hard, the cartographer that dies all the way back in Chapter 3, Corporal Bessie Flynn who is synchronistically connected to another name I'm about to bring up. That is an example, but I was also thinking of a moment ago, uh, Henry Jackson, where mm. he's given morphine for the pain and allowed to pass away relatively peacefully, surrounded by the people that care about him. Maybe, maybe they don't know him as well as James and Abigail know Annie, but it feels he, like... He's witnessed... He is fully witnessed, and there is a comfort added to that situation. Mm. Here, there is going to be people who will not get closure because mm. they were not with her when she died. Mm. That's going to hit hardest Frank, obviously, which is why I brought it up. But when I think about those other deaths that have happened in New Century and other stories, uh, Rafe, for example, mm. dies outside of the protection of everybody else, and his body is food for the Wendigo. And it hurts people to look out at his body. Desecration of a body just makes it even harder to find peace and closure, especially when you still have crises to be resolved. My brother, he was in the truck when Who will be there to bury him? Or my father? No funerals. No one there to say goodbye. 
Funerals don't help them. And goodbyes don't help you. As opposed to how we can imagine it was for Amanda, who mm. was languishing away in bed, but at least was being tended to mm. before her transformation. transformation, which is a form of death, but not quite the same as how Cleo and Rafe died to the savage attack by the Wendy. Mm. Here, the setup of it. Mm adds to the overall despair of the moment. And Annie has succeeded in fending off their attackers, but it's a little bit different than, say, when Aragorn is tending to Boromir, and Boromir is dying in in a long, drawn-out way that is similar to Annie, but he's surrounded by so many goddamn orc corpses Mm. that it feels like even though the death is sad, he accomplished so much with his dying actions. The the, the orcs had to, like, attack him and attack him before passing away. And mm. it just feels different than any taking out people from far away. You may see some of the results of it, but it just doesn't feel... it, it Beauregard surrounded yes. by the by the the men that he killed mm. protecting weirwood that feels more like a boromir death as a tree that was significant to him and catherine yeah, yeah. exactly i would s- sort of add to that such sort of confront the idea that uh annie doesn't feel that same feeling of like having dispatched the threat the monster because the invocation of the wolves at the door, mm. all of that. But specifically, I want to return this to, as you say, the subject of place, of where. The comparison with Boromir is that while he is dying in the middle of the woods in this effectively random battlefield, mm. Aragorn's proximity to him and that conversation and the final words between them of a resolve that Aragorn will not let their people down and Boromir's recognition of him as king Mm. essentially transports him to Gondor, transports him mentally and in spirit to the place that he has dedicated his life to, his twinned his identity with. I do not know what strength is in my blood. But I swear to you, I will not let the White City fall. Our people fail. Our people. Our people. on top of that the remains of the fellowship give him a proper 
Gondorian, one might say, death by mm. packing him into one of their boats, giving him his arms, and sending mm. him down the waterfall. James and Abigail do their best under the circumstances, but a simple grave made with a rusty shovel in the middle of nowhere feels unequal to her life, even if the words marking this place are perfect in their simplicity. On a little stone I scratched, Annie Oakley, 1883, at rest. So essentially to round off this point of where she dies, she doesn't get that transportation, even in a spiritual Mm. sense, to a place or an idea of comfort. And we'll go to that later. But there are many things about Annie's death which is a triumph and many things that are a tragedy yeah the where is part of the tragedy of it because she it's not even that she gets to fend off some attackers and then die in steam heart Mm -hmm. she fends off attackers and dies in a strange place with only two points of familiarity and her greatest point of comfort and familiarity is far away. I do want to take a moment here to speak to something that Toby just said, because it dovetails with a side conversation I had with Alex very recently. It's important to acknowledge that in spite of the tragedy of Annie's death, there is something good that comes out of this, that Abby and James are neither killed nor recaptured. I find I have a hard time focusing on the good because of all these other ways in which Abby's death pains me. Almost all of this conversation with Toby could be summed up simply. Why does it hurt so much? But I promise before the end, I will share with you something that I had overlooked that Alex reminded me of. For now, let's press on. Third subtopic? when she dies, meaning at what part of the story. Mm. Annie's death comes specifically after Abigail chose to sever, or at least she wanted to at least, their friendship. It cuts at Abigail and the audience because of that classic move of regretting some of your last days with someone you care about. Think Peter's final conversation with Uncle Ben in the first of the Raimi Spider-Mans, We all remember, with great power comes great responsibility, that quote. But we forget that in that film, Peter follows Uncle Ben's statement with a sharp defensiveness. Are you afraid that I'm going to turn into some kind of criminal? Quit worrying about me, okay? Something's different. I'll figure it out. Stop lecturing me, please. I don't mean to lecture and I don't mean to preach. And I know I'm not your father. Then stop pretending to be. We regret Annie's death because it leaves things undone. It leaves reconciliations never conciliated, I suppose might be the word. I don't know, but Mm. death isn't neat. It doesn't grant us the time to wrap up anything and everything we might have going on. And on that subject, it also comes at a time when we really need Annie. She's 
capable in a shootout. She's the best negotiator on the team and she's good at coming up with plans in times of crisis. All of that security is taken away from us. We are in even less of a place of security. We don't have Kral, the Hulk of the team, and we don't have our Captain America. And we are forced to confront the real possibility that someone else will get killed by circumstances outside of our or the character's control. Yeah. There are a lot of stories that threaten danger and death to our heroes, but never really follow through with it. And it partly depends on the creators of the story and what they intend for their characters and whether their death is appropriate to whatever kind of story they're trying to tell. I think we've mentioned this before, but whenever you kill a character, you kill all story potential with that character. So you have to make sure that their death is worth it. See the OSP trope talk video on character death. Absolutely. So that's a good uh, watch in terms of discussing the ins and outs of including that in your fiction. We always seem to keep coming back to Fellowship of the Ring or Lord of the Rings in general because it's a touchstone that you and I, but also a lot of other people are familiar with. We've just talked about how it is a heroic sacrifice, Mm -hmm. but Boromir's death also comes at the end of the story. Here, Mm. as you've just laid into, the story is not over yet, and now the team is weaker as a result of her not being around. Mm. It gives us, it keeps us in that despairing place for longer now that Annie is no longer present because we know what the knock-on effects are going to be on all the other members of the group. It's going to make them feel more afraid, less secure. What are they going to do as a result of this new, fresh tragedy when they've barely had time, when they've had no time at all to recover from the last one? Mm. And you mentioned even a moment ago that like, now that Annie has died it makes us fear even more for who else is going to die. And in the chapters that we cover, we are teased with the possibility of losing yet another person. But Alex is wise enough to let us know almost immediately, no, no, Miguel is not dead. Yeah. This this was a ploy. Mm -hmm. And Miguel is still among the living and is actually key to helping things not get worse from Mm. this point. Miguel is almost necessary to, like, Mm. he got away, and if he didn't find the strength within him to act, like, we don't even necessarily know uh, how things would have played out from there. Uh, But Mm. we'll get into that in a second. Yeah. So that that is the only thing that I wanted Mm. to allude to, is that... It's different from being in the middle of the story. It's different mm. from being at the end of the story. So it adds to the emotional tenor. And that's why, again, this death hits us so hard. Mm. And with the knowledge of fictional tropes, we were very careful when discussing Crowell and her death earlier to not reveal too much of the cards that the rest of the story had to play. Because of the chapters we are covering today, we can 
revealed that that was not the full story of what happened to her or what would happen to her. And with Miguel, we, as you say, we get that immediate reprieve. Both of those deaths are, we don't see a body. We don't get that liberty with Annie. Mm, we have we, to live through her mm, death. Yes, we have to sit with her as James and Abigail have to sit with Annie. Mm. And, and that makes it concrete. There's something that I wanted to touch on that came up when we were discussing the, the where question of her death, mm -hmm. which is that even though she is not witnessed by the entire group, she is witnessed by James and Abigail. And there is significance behind that, not simply because of the story significance due to these are the people she was supposed to protect. These are the people that she was supposed to kill if necessary. Mm. But these are also the avatars of our two primary creative forces, Alex and Sharon. Mm. So there, there's an additional symbolic aspect. I love that, yeah. Steamheart itself has been a reprisal of all the voices of the cartographer's handbook. The place where all of this began. We've been following along with Abigail all through this story, as she's tried to collect this totem of all those voices. And now we have lost one more. Alex has mentioned more than once about knowing he would need to give her back to history. In the scope of his first novel, it's not obvious how important she would become. Thomas was the heart of the handbook, and Annie was just one of many contributions, even if she was a famous figure. But to us, she was more than just a famous name. She was a bright, shining light in the darkness. The hope she gave to Team Steam, she also gave to us. You and I have already had multiple points uh, when recording this, where we're like, trying to hold back the tears, I still have more things to say. This whole recording session, well, past the point where we started talking about this. I have been talking about this with a pit in my stomach. It feels like shit. And it's because this is well done. I can't complain because this is good stuff, but it's terrible, but it's well done. And you see the cycle that we are trapping ourselves in. We are in the bagel and i just want to be in the googly eyes again yeah and, no uh, this is um 
through the window is for fans of this piece of work. Mm-hmm. But the most feedback that you and I always get is from the creator, is from Alex himself. Mm. And I just think to myself, whenever we start talking on the darker parts of his stories, it's like we're saying to him, thank you, Alex. Thank you so much for hurting us so deeply. Mm. Uh, hurt me more, Snake. (laughs) Through the Window is definitely one of the most elaborate and involved conversations. Mm. It is multifaceted in that... Yes, uh, my primary intention is that this is by fans, for fans. It is just a venue for and expression of enjoyment of it, uh, of fan experience of New Century. It also gets to be something that is that few fan podcasts get to be, which is a unique conversation between us and the author. In him listening to it, he's often said that he forgets that he writes these things. Mm. This time we're going to remind you, Alex, you're the one who hurt you as well. Like, don't blame us. Blame you. You wrote this. You put us all in this space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) No, we're not done. Fourth talking point. Why she dies. Mm. When I originally wrote this bit, the simple answer is that she dies because she needed to protect those that couldn't defend themselves. Mm. That is a significant portion of this chapter. Neither James nor Abigail were in a position to do what Annie did. Annie is better at it than both of them, but if they didn't have the starlit eyes, then it's entirely possible that James could have done his doctorly magic because he is a genius because he is very good at what he does, and Abigail could have defended them. Mm. But because they can't, it's down to her, and it therefore prevents James from even trying to save her life in time. At a point where, in any circumstance, you would want it to be that all energy goes towards supporting her, Mm. just in the sense of like helping her to get through this to survive it that all energy would be spent on that she says no i want you to put all of your energy into essentially propping me up so that i can support you none of the energy gets to be spent on my preservation it's on me ensuring your preservation you could extrapolate any number of conclusions as to why she dies quote unquote why she dies yes yeah what like the the why did she have to die you confront yourself you extrapolate the doylist explanations and mm. the watsonian explanations mm. the mm. sort of story motivation to have her die at this particular point and the in world cause and effect that leads to this happening yeah And you could say that they were backed into a corner after the encounter with Seth and the Wendigo, that Mm -hmm. after that, they really did the most sensible and logical course of action that they possibly could. And unfortunately, it put them into this path. So it could be that that moment sealed her fate. Mm -hmm. You could say it was actually the actions of Rose and the residents of Green Hollow that 
make her a casualty. They are the people directly responsible for her death. That's hard to argue against. You can also say that it was her promise to Catherine, her responsibilities to Arlington and to America to keep the endowment safe and her affection for her friends. These are all reasons that she literally lays her life on the line to protect James and Abigail. Unless we forget, it's also not just about James and Abigail. Rose is leveraged to keep the rest of Team Steam alive and or unharmed. If they fail here, and Rose either dies or is rescued, then this quickly becomes an even bigger tragedy. If their pursuers weren't able to follow them to this location for some reason, and James was able to administer what medical treatment he could with the resources that he had to hand, that would still be no guarantee of her survival. As such, it doesn't necessarily come down to Annie had a choice between living and dying and chose the path that would protect her friends. There were no easy guarantees with either path available to them. So all she could do was go with the plan that gave her the best chance at succeeding at whatever she most prioritised. And her actions make it plain to see what it was that she prioritised, what she has always prioritised, believed in and worked towards using her skills to help and protect what and who she believes in. On the subject of discussing villainous characters in New Century a couple of days back, Alex pointed out that Annie is the polar opposite of people like that, the epitome of selflessness versus selfishness. We have seen Annie at her weakest points throughout her arc, but she always works to do the right thing no matter what it costs her that even though she breathes her last in these pages, that her final act of self-sacrifice is a celebration of what is good in her and in humanity. Her bravery and decency might make you glad to be alive. I'm not going to do something everyone expects me to do, but in a way that those who know me would not expect. Put a penny in the jar as I play this clip of Charlie Young from The West Wing reading a relevant part of the Bible. But the souls of the virtuous are in the hands of God. No torment shall ever touch them. In the eyes of the unwise, they did appear to die, but they are at peace. But though in the sight of others they were punished, their hope is full of immortality. You pointed out a number of good points. There is no one reason why she dies. There are multiple things that are stacked up against each other that contribute to why this was always going to be the most likely result. On top of everything else, even if Annie had let James tend to her, James doesn't have his medical bag. Mm. And a doctor is really, in some cases, only as good as his tools. He doesn't mm. have many tools to work with here. Mm. Your, your brain is the biggest asset, but if you're dealing with implements that are of poor make, then it limits your ability even with your superior skill. Annie probably realized this. Annie probably realized that something bad was going to happen one way or another. Might as well put all your effort into trying to do the one thing you might be able to succeed at rather mm -hmm. than letting James putting futile efforts into something that was 
statistically speaking, a foregone conclusion at that point. For as much as there are so many uncertainties and complexities to the why she dies, mm. that question has multiple avenues because you can interpret it as what was it that caused her death? Or you can interpret it as what did she die for? Mm. In terms of what caused her death, it's the circumstances of the story. It's the circumstances of the antagonistic forces that put her in the path of that bullet. In terms of what she dies for, it's plain to see that she dies for her friends. She dies for the approach to life that she's always wanted to be. The thing that I take away from most of all of what she dies for is the central tension of her character arc throughout Steamheart is her conflict between the two promises that she has made mm. to people she respects and believes in, which is Catherine and Thomas Arlington. These promises that are in conflict with one another. The promise she made to Catherine, which was to keep James and Abigail safe, and the promise she made to Thomas, which was to keep the endowments within them safe, even if that is at the expense of their lives, even if it's just a possibility, the fact that she had to promise that she would follow the order to do this if that situation comes up is enough of a conflict. What she dies for here is for the original promise, the original promise to Catherine. That's the thing that wins out. Even though what she does still follows through on what Thomas ordered her to do, which is to ensure that the endowment doesn't fall into the hands of any of the attackers or that Abigail gets James's endowment or that James gets Abigail's endowment or that it goes into her, like all of these things. It was still the best thing to do to keep those endowments safe because it was keeping them safe. One can almost argue that her final act is an apology yes. for, having, for having to live with this conflict to begin with. It's not like she could choose. She made the choice to try and find a happy medium between Arlington's orders and between her promise. Mm. But we know that she carries so much guilt around having to give that promise to begin with, even if it was for understandable reasons, mm. even if there was logic in what Thomas was asking of them. Yes. I like, I like what you bring up there about it being an apology. You could just, say that that's... Just like Boromir rushing to the defense of Pippin and Meriadoc yes. is an apology yes. to Frodo. Yes, exactly. And... The one thing that is an interesting difference between the two is that Boromir, his attempt is ultimately unsuccessful. Well, if he did not actually prevent Merry and Pippin being abducted, which mm. was what the Uruks would have. Yeah, he didn't necessarily know that the Urukai wanted to capture the, the halflings as opposed to just kill them. Nevertheless, the end result was the same mm. what matters what comes about because of that is his choice it's, it's his choice which redeems him he gets to be the man that he wants to be and chooses to be rather than someone 
manipulated and controlled by his urges and his selfishness and his, his selfishness and his emotion because mm. he also wants to be mm. the son that brings the ring back to Denethor because he feels like he has something to prove mm. being the eldest son being yes. a son of Gondor and Annie's is a choice as well but at the same time it is no choice at all mm. she makes the decision to prioritize James and Abigail's safety and I think something that is a blessing to her and it's why it's her act is an apology to uh to Abigail but it's also the scenario is an apology to Annie herself because it gives her the blessing of taking this series of far too complicated for anyone to unpack and to navigate mm. that she's had to do so throughout the text and gives her a relatively simple scenario people are coming to attack them and she has the means to protect her friends mm. and she does so and that leads us directly into the final talking point how she feels when she dies <sighs> this is the one for mm. the record that has broken me i've mm. had this ache in my heart and in my stomach for the duration of the conversation this is this bit kills me every time after annie's work is done after the group is safe and her responsibilities fulfilled as far as she is able to carry them. There is nothing more to focus on except for the end. As long as something needed doing, she was the one people counted on to be able to do it. And she could for her whole life. But the final note is on the toll that takes day after day, year after year until that builds into an entire lifetime. She gives everything to and for others, and that leaves little room for giving that strength to keep herself afloat. It is a devastatingly sad thing to hear a character we love confide in us in their final moments. But in a way, it also gives her, at the very least, that bittersweet reprieve because she no longer has to carry that i recently posted something on the through the wind door forum in response to something that alex said in some ways it's absolutely necessary for us to go into the detail that we have in this story and in all others so that we're able to outline the individual points of the arc of the story and of our characters. Her final moment is symbolically true to every point that we can map in her past in terms of who she is as a person and what she cares about. And when she says that she gives hope to everybody so much that she has little left for herself, these, this final act is literally her doing that. She has saved James and Abigail 
and that has to be the little hope that she can salvage out of this situation so that hopefully the two of them can successfully protect everybody else and everything that they have done up to this point. I bring up the despair because of the point where the despair is in the story. In Fellowship of the Ring, Aragorn is able to give some hope to Boromir in his final moments. Mm. In Serenity, which we brought up, Mal is able to give hope to his crew after everything that they've been through. And one could also argue that River is able to give hope to the group with her seeming heroic sacrifice at the climactic battle in that story. And there are many other ways that I could refer back to this, but I'm trying not to go on and on about it. It's just that after everything that she's been through, it kills us that this is how she dies, feeling as horribly as she does. There's so many stories where some brave hero decides to give their life to save the day. And because of their sacrifice, the good guys win, the survivors all cheer, and everybody lives happily ever after. But the hero never gets to see that ending. They'll never know if their sacrifice actually made a difference. They'll never know if the day was really saved. In the end, they just have to have faith. There's not only so little hope left for her, there's a very, it feels to us like there's very little hope left for us as well. We're probably at a point where we have drawn as much as we can from this, and we and have... We need, to, we need to cauterize the wound, yeah. so to speak, and move on yeah. to the next topic. I mean, Annie deserved this. Annie, of course, deserved, for this moment, she deserved us, like, going into all of this, that... If we just said, oh, it's really sad, moving on. Like, Annie doesn't deserve a Loki, yes, very sad anyway. She deserves what Boromir gets, a proper send-off where we witness her. She deserves to be witnessed, and this is us witnessing her. Yeah, you, you, you absolutely <laughs> took the words right out of my mouth. This is... This is the eulogy that she didn't get in the story. Yeah, this is clumsy, but I will say that my words just now were a touch clumsy because it is not the same as in Fury Road of Annie just going, witness me! <laughs> but if we were to draw upon Fury Road, mm. then one perhaps could draw some similarity of feeling between this moment and Nux mutely pointing at mm. everybody else mm. as he gives his final breath, so to speak. He's not in the middle of dying, but we know that he has been dying by degrees for a very long time. And so this one thing is finally a good death, is the best way to put it, but it mm. still kills us because we grew to like him, we grew to sympathize with him, and we wanted, we hoped for 
a better death than what he got, a death where he could be surrounded by those that had come to care for him. Yeah. Feels like hope. But if he had to go out, then protecting everybody else was the way to do it. And they in the story witnessed it, and we outside of the story witnessed it. So, mm. yeah. Mm. <sighs> that, that, I think that's yeah, all I can say. It's just like an exhale mm-hmm. because we need that breath. And that's where we shall end it for now. Because the next topic was discussing Abby and her confrontation with Rose McLellan, and I don't really feel like ending on that. Give Annie her own space. An episode mourning her death and contemplating her life without being touched by an evil woman's thorns. Until next time, there is only one song I could play. One I chose for Annie long ago when speaking with the woman that gave her voice. Legends never die When the world is calling you Can you hear them screaming out your name? Legends never die They become a part of you Every time you play for reaching greatness Relentless you survive